Good evening. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me tonight to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, we will be in Matthew 24 in just a few moments as we begin our study time tonight together. I have been a musician most all of my life since the age of nine. And so I know without a shadow of a doubt that the pinnacle for a musician would be to be able to perform his or her craft in a place like Carnegie Hall. That's the top of the mountain. Well, as the preacher of the gospel, I can say tonight that to be able to stand and preach this priceless, timeless word in a place like Lehman Avenue is very similar to that comparison. I feel so honored and so grateful to have been asked to be a part of this meeting, and I appreciate the elders for their invitation, for so many who have made this stay and so many others that I've had here so enjoyable, so much assistance from so many. We've had great song leading. Uh, I appreciate Randy and John, those in the sound room who have helped so much. I appreciate the wonderful meals that I have enjoyed. I came here with a goal of, of not gaining too much weight. I told somebody the other day that I am on a perpetual journey of trying to get back to my original weight of 6 pounds and 12 ounces. And I said that to an old brother in Christ in South Georgia last year, and he gave me an answer that I didn't expect. When I told him I was trying to get back to 6 pounds and 12 ounces, he kind of looked at me and said, Well, your old fat head weighs more than that. You'll never make it. So uh, uh, that was a great deal of encouragement for me. So... But I just appreciate so much. I wish Debbie could have been here this week. She is watching tonight on the stream, her and her father in Union City, Tennessee. And I know she has expressed to me several times her desire to let you know how much she appreciates your prayers and all the expressions of love that you've shared with her during her journey through metastatic breast cancer. There were two empty nesters sitting in a swing on the porch. They were enjoying an evening together, and they turned and looked at one another so lovingly, and and the wife slid the glasses off her husband's face and looked at him for a long moment, and she said to him, you know, without your glasses, you look like the same handsome young man that I married, and he replied, And you know, without my glasses, you don't look so bad yourself. (laughs) Well, the Bible tells us in Revelation 1, as we've read tonight, that none of us will need glasses when our Lord Jesus returns. That it will not be a secretive rapture, as the premillennial folks say, but rather that every eye will see him. When Jesus stood before Caiaphas, the high priest, in Matthew chapter 26, Verses 63 and 64. He said to him, Nevertheless, I say unto you, as Caiaphas had charged him and given him a charge basically under oath to tell if he was the Christ, he admitted he was, and he says, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. First Thessalonians 5.23, Paul said to the church at Thessalonica, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Today is the day. That is true. As Paul has said in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. 
And in our time together since Sunday, we've talked about a number of pivotal days in the history of the world. And all of those days are past, with the exception of the return of the prodigal, which continues. The day we talk about tonight is strictly future. It's the day we look forward to. It's the day that we long for. It's the day that we get up every morning thinking about the return of our Lord Jesus. It's the day that we strive to never lose a sense of urgency regarding in terms of thinking, well, it it can't happen today. Brethren, it could happen before we go to sleep tonight. And because of that, because of the urgency of this day and what it means to the children of God and also to those who are not children of God, we must have a sense of keenness. We must be watchful. And we must be aware of the significance of that great day that's coming that we often sing about in our hymns. First of all tonight, I want us to talk about the spectacle of the second coming of Christ, that day that every eye will see him. And I want us to read together from Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew 24, Jesus mixes two events. The discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, which was so pivotal to those, those Jews who were listening to him preach. And then he morphs from that into this great day that we're referring to this evening. Let's begin reading in verse 30 of chapter 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branches, or when its branch rather, has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. He's referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, and then the language changes. But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. You talk about urgency? There it is. There it is. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you don't, do not know what hour your Lord is coming, whether it was the destruction of Jerusalem or this great day we're talking about. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And we could read on through the end of the chapter, but the point is made. This spectacle that we will see, that that we will appreciate and fully experience in terms of our senses and our inner person and our, our physical person. 
Again, what a spectacle it is, and that's truly the word for it. Over and over and over again, the Scripture talks about the return of our Lord and uses words that are common in each circumstance, and one of those words is glory. Listen to these verses. Colossians 3 and verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints. 1 Peter 4.13, His glory is revealed that you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Titus 2.13, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. This isn't going to be an insignificant event. When Jesus appears with His holy angels, He will be in His glorified state much as He was on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17 and in Mark chapter 9. When Peter, James, and John saw Him and were just taken aback at the spectacle that they witnessed. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16 that the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The voice of the archangel, which none of us have ever heard to this moment, but we will. And the trump or trumpet of God. And Paul goes on in writing in the next chapter to this same church and tells them it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to come without fanfare in terms of advance warning or announcement. We have been given all the warning that we will receive. There will not be a seven-year period of tribulation and then the coming and then something else. Jesus is very clear. No one but the Father knows the hour. There's never been an event like this. And there will never be an event like it thereafter. Again, power and glory, an unexpected nature of it. And the, the most beautiful thing about it is that it will be the fruition Again, the fruition of all that we have hoped for. All that we have longed for. To see our Lord come back, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, to get the kingdom and deliver that kingdom up to the Father. To submit Himself eternally to the Father with us so that Christ and God may be all in all. There are so many among us on this earth who have made the mistake of trying to predict when this event is going to happen. Several instances I want to share with you. December the 31st, the year was 999, just before that thousand year mark. It was a Sunday, and cathedrals all over Europe filled up with thousands of people expecting Jesus to return at midnight. And of course he did not. William Miller, a denominational preacher in New York City, predicted that Jesus would return on October 22, 1845. Thousands of folks in white robes walked the tops of hills outside of New York City waiting to be caught up. Jesus didn't come. Edgar Wisnett, a former NASA engineer, wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And of course he did not. And who can forget Y2K? 
supposedly the apocalypse, when the world would end, computers would just go nuts, and here comes the Lord. I think we're, what, 21 years beyond that? And then later on, a man by the name of Harold Camping, who has a national radio ministry, predicted that Jesus for sure would come on May 21st, 2011. And so he began to plead with his listeners to send in funds that he might get this word out to all the world. Harold Camping made $4.5 million in donations by giving a prediction that was false. The spectacle of our Lord's coming again, this day when every eye will see him, is beyond human knowledge in terms of being able to say when it will happen Really what we need to be involved in now is not trying to predict or prognosticate when it will happen, but rather in preparing for when it will happen. Turn with me, if you will, back over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And let's read the first 14 verses of this chapter. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. And said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. And sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited. See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted calf are killed. And all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways. One to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious and sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. The king said to his servants, Bind him head and foot. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. John wrote in Revelation 21 and verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, the same metaphor is here in Matthew 22, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, which we've already shared this week, we'll do it again. John writes there, As I heard, and I heard rather, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, The sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and here it is, His wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires to take 
or excuse me, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. I remember when our youngest daughter was preparing for her wedding. Man, she had magazine pages of, of, of bridal gowns and this and that pasted all over the walls of her room and her dorm room in college. She was preparing as a bride for her bridegroom. She was making ready for the day that she would become his partner in life. And the bridegroom has given that opportunity to the bride because he loves her. And she loves him. And she wants to prepare herself for his coming to be with her. You know, in Jewish Orthodox weddings today, when the first part of that wedding, the betrothal, takes place, the bridegroom will come to the house of his bride, bringing a bride price along with his family, very ceremonial as it would have been hundreds of years ago. And when he comes and they open the door and here is his bride before him, way before the wedding, he gives her the bride price. His family offers that to, to her family and he says these words to her. I go to prepare a place for you and I will come back and receive you unto myself. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? John chapter 14, verses 1 and following. Our Lord is coming again. He's coming to claim His bride. And what is incumbent upon us as those who are part of the bride of Christ is to make sure we are ready when He comes. Brethren and friends, we must love the church. And I'll go even further than that. We must be in love with the bride just as the bridegroom is in love. And we must be as in love with him as he with us. And we must be happy and enthused and passionate and excited about the prospect of when he comes. For he is coming. That's not uncertain. That's a given. And it's our opportunity now and and having a sense of urgency and living life and preparing ourselves for that day. And not being found unready or unadorned or unprepared. Friends, I have done weddings now for 43 years. And in almost every case before I will perform the wedding, I'll try to go around and see both parts of the, of the wedding party, both the bride and the bridegroom. Now, when I walk in to see the bridegroom, he may look like his groomsman because he didn't want to put that tux on. He doesn't want to wear that penguin suit. But you know what? You can go in among those bridesmaids. And there she is. The bridesmaids are beautiful. Oh, but there's no mistaking the bride. She is preparing and adorning herself for her husband. The church is not the foundation of our faith. Christ is. We've made mistakes in the past in the Lord's body of doing a better job of converting folks to the church than converting them to Christ. And what happens when that happens is when those folks come into the church, they're added to the church through their obedience of the gospel. If the church is the foundation of all that they know and all that they have in terms of their faith, whenever they see imperfection in the church, the foundation for their faith is shattered. And they say things like, well, if that's Christianity, I'll just go back to the world. The foundation of our faith is not the church. 
It is God Himself through Christ Jesus. He has founded the church. He is the rock on which it is founded. But the church must be dear to us and precious to us because it is to Him. And being a part of it must be the most grand and wonderful and most important thing in our lives. Or else we will not prepare ourselves for His coming in the way that we should. I want to say a couple of personal things here. I've not been asked to say these things and I don't get paid another dime for saying them. I say them because I mean them. What a beautiful, wonderful example of the Bride of Christ is the congregation known as Lehman Avenue. No, you were not perfect. But your Savior, your head, your bridegroom is. You have wonderful men who serve as elders. No, they are not perfect. They need the blood of Jesus. They may make decisions and do things that you don't understand or that you don't agree with, but maybe you don't have the same information they do. For sure, I know these men and know them well enough to know that they love this body of Christ. They love this flock over which they are overseers and shepherds. And I travel so much in our brotherhood because of my position with the Georgia School of Preaching and Biblical Studies. I can tell you, you have wonderful men serving as elders. And they love this church. And the decisions that they make and the examples that they try to be are done with that great love and that that sense of responsibility. And we are to esteem them highly in love because of their work's sake, as the Scripture says. Also, you have wonderful preachers. You have an all-star pitching rotation. These three men are the best that you can find in our brotherhood. You won't find any three better on any staff anywhere. And they will stand and preach sermons that are high quality, that will bless your life and the lives of others, so that when you go out and invite your friends to come to worship, you don't ever have to be embarrassed about the quality of sermon that they will hear when they come in this place. What a blessing that is. You also have great deacons who serve and make sure that their responsibilities are met and taken care of. What wonderful plans you have for the future. This is a grand old building, but what wonderful plans you have for growth and for reaching Warren County and Bowling Green, Kentucky, and this entire region. What a wonderful place this is. What great zeal that you see when you walk in this place and experience the love and and the passion and the zeal that you see in people's lives for living for Christ. It is so encouraging. And again, I want to interject the idea that even with those things, this congregation isn't perfect. And someone would say, well, they're not this, and they're not this, and we're not this, and we're not this, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Read Revelation 2 and 3. The seven churches of Asia Minor, five of those congregations, five of those churches had major problems. Anywhere from the coddling and the receiving of false teachers to being lukewarm to having left their first love, you just, you just go down the list of the problems of those five But not one time does the Holy Spirit through John say, you know, it's not really good where you are over here in Ephesus. Why don't you hunt you some other place to be? You don't see that. I read a blog article recently that talked about flee your church that's not found in the book of Revelation. The idea is given forth and the exhortation is put forth in those two chapters that the faithful in those congregations that have these monumental problems must continue to be faithful. And to try to turn the unfaithfulness that they see back in the right direction by their example and the things that they themselves teach. 
Friends, Corinth was messed up. But Paul says you are called to be saints, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 2. The Bible tells us in, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 14 that the church at Rome, though it existed in the belly of the beast, the depths of the Roman Empire, which became the great enemy of the church, the Bible says, Paul says, I am persuaded that you are full of goodness. The devil, Satan, our adversary, we talked about him on Sunday morning. He does not want to see this church flourish. He does not want to see it prosper. He does not want to see it be a blessing to this area and the bringing of the gospel to those who are lost. And so he will do everything in his power to divide it, to thwart its emphasis, to cause infighting and backbiting and division. Don't give place to the devil. Ephesians 4.27 Because there is a day coming in which you will see the bridegroom. And he will be coming for his bride, and you are part of that bride, one that's supposed to dwell together in unity. How good and pleasant it is, Psalm 133, verses 1 to 3. Religious writer Howard Hendricks has talked about evangelism and the fragmentation in modern religion. And one of the things he talks about in terms of, of the church not doing its job as an evangelistic force in reaching out with the gospel to those who are lost, he says, we're no longer fishers of men, but rather we are keepers of the aquarium, and we spend all of our time swapping fish from each other's bowls. That's a convicting illustration. What you see sometimes in churches of Christ are the ping-ponging of members from one place to the other because they aren't, they aren't being maybe given their way. It's not because of a scriptural reason necessarily in every case. It's, it's more of a personality kind of conflict. Let us not be that small and petty. No one is supposed to have their way all the time except Christ. The bride of Christ is meant to be beautiful. She is preparing and adorning herself for the arrival of her husband. The one that she is betrothed to. And so in view of the day that's coming... One of our mandates is to offer the invitation to those who are not part of the bride of Christ. Let's look at Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 7. Luke 14, beginning in verse 7. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place. Lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. He who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. In other words, don't put yourself at the head of the table. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when he who invited you comes, he may say, friend, go up higher. Then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends or your brothers or relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. 
My friends, let's don't be those who offer an invitation to obey the gospel to only the highest and best. To only those who look like us with the same pigment in our skin or the same socioeconomic or educational level or anything else. Let us offer the gospel to all men. To all human beings. To all of our fellow humans created in the image of God. Because that's one of the beauties of the gospel. It's one of the beauties of the Great Commission. It is for everyone. And our responsibility is not to go out and build monuments or cathedrals. Yes, your buildings are a tool. They're a tool to get a job done. And that job is to offer the invitation to those who are lost to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let us ever be about that business because Jesus says at least five times that we can count in Scripture. In John chapters 12, 13, 14, and then later in 16, He talks about what's going to pass between the time He goes and is with the Father and comes back. He uses the phrase, a little while. And compared to eternity, that's exactly what it is. We don't have forever to get this job done. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Isaiah 62 and verse 5. Friends, time is slipping away. Think about your own life. Think about where you are on that ladder and continuum of the chronology of life. Time is slipping away. Every day that passes is one less day that we have. To reach out to those who are lost with the gospel. It puts us one day closer to the coming of the bridegroom. But one day less in terms of opportunity. I just want to ask this question in closing tonight. How much time do we waste? With the minutia of life that really doesn't matter. And how much of a mistake sometimes we make in making those things which are meant just for our sustenance, making them into the fabric of our very lives. When God has never, never intended for us to do that. Evangelism is the great mission of the church. Seeking and saving the lost is what Jesus came to do. Luke 19.10, and it is the commission that He has given us. And COVID-19 need not to have driven us into Elijah's cave in Horeb, 1 Kings 19, so that the Lord has to come to us and say, what are you doing here? May we see the urgency of the moment and see Matthew chapter 4, verses 20 through 22. When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, the Bible says they immediately left their nets and followed Him. When Jesus ascended back into heaven, Acts chapter 10, or uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, those two men who stood by them in white apparel, what did they say to them? Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? You've got a job to do. You go into Jerusalem and you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, and you'll begin to preach and spread this word throughout. Acts chapter 5, verse 22, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Later on, when persecution arose around Stephen, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, the Bible says that those who were scattered, as the church was, went everywhere preaching the word. 
It wasn't that there was someone on their heels trying to take their life. That wasn't the focus. The focus was to maintain the mission. And the mission is preaching and teaching and sharing this saving message with the world and encouraging one another while it is called today. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. I want to end tonight with this image. It's from a book entitled Time for God. And I don't know if you can see it on the screen behind me, but what it is, it is a mathematically calculated schedule compared to a lifetime of three score and ten or seventy years where that lifetime is plotted on the face of a clock with the hours of a single day beginning at seven o'clock in the morning. Seven o'clock in the morning and ending at 11 p.m. at night. Seven is when the conception happens. Eleven is when death happens. If you can see that list behind me, and I hope you can, where are you on that list? If you're 15 years old, it's 1025 in the morning. If you're 20, it's 1134. If you're 25, it's 1242. And you can just go down the list and look at the numbers I stand here as a 65-year-old, and and my clock says 9.51 p.m. Where are you on that clock? How much time do you have? And no, I'm not saying if you're beyond 70, you're dead and in the grave. not saying that at all. Trying to use this illustration to point out the urgency of the day, the day when every eye shall see him. What a wonderful opportunity you have in Bowling Green, Warren County, and this surrounding area. Redeem the time. For the days are evil, but redeem the time. Again, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you need to respond to the invitation tonight and become a Christian, put Christ on in baptism, have your sins washed away. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're willing to confess that before men and repent of your sins, you can be a child of God tonight. You can be a a member, a part of the bride of Christ. And what a glorious hope you will have from that moment until you see Him coming in the clouds. Because, again, every eye will see Him. If for some reason you've fallen away, you've lived more for yourself and your adversary than your Lord. Then come and confess that tonight. Ask God to forgive you. He'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness and restore you to his family so that one day when that great day comes, you'll have rejoicing. Rejoicing beyond measure. If we can help you tonight, you need to respond. Please do it while together we stand and sing.